Welcome to Author News Weekly, the weekly news show by authors for authors. We read the news so you don't have to. Join our panel of best-selling authors each week as we take a deep dive into the publishing world, both indie and traditional. Author News Weekly. Yeah, whatever. Welcome back to Author News Weekly. Thanks for joining us. I'm R.A. McGee, and you're not. You know who else is not R.A. McGee? Jim Heskett. Correct. I'm not R.A. McGee. I'm Jim Heskett. Pippa Werner. I refuse to confirm or deny that. Mm. <laughs> Salty. Nikolai Thacker. I am a very good deep fake of R.A. McGee. I mean, of Nick Thacker, but I'm actually R.A. Right. Never mind. You know what I'm talking about. It's all, it's all so good. I'm still Jim Heskett to. I feel like we're in Blade Runner right now, and I'm not sure who's what. But in any event, so I have a confession to make. For the first time, I watched the movie There Will Be Blood, okay? Mm. And I got the strong vibe when I was done that this is one of those movies that I'm supposed to tell everybody that I watched and talk about how awesome it is, but on the inside feel like I want my life back because other than the milkshake thing, it kind of, I guess it went over my head. There really wasn't a lot of blood. <laughs> Almost none. I was, I was there, there for the is blood. blood. It's, there will be blood. That movie should have ended 20 minutes earlier. That whole epilogue was completely unnecessary. It should have ended after the scene in the church. Yeah. I don't know why that had that end part there. Didn't I think didn't. it should be remade and Michael Bay should direct it. <laughs> well, I know that the scene where... Daniel Day-Lewis says, I don't much like people. That's haunted me for years. Just that scene. Mm. Been too long. I don't remember it. But I had pretty much the same vibe that I was talking about when I finished. I was like, huh? And I think I went to bed. And now I can tell people I've seen it. I saw (laughs) Daniel Day-Lewis's masterwork and whatever. I think we should stop talking bad about Daniel Day-Lewis and do the thing that we do every week. Get into the news. Bravo, deep fake of me. You did a great job, sir. Okay, story number one. This is about some effery with the bestseller charts. This is from inews.co.uk, and the headline is WH Smith's best-selling book charts filled with titles publishers have paid to feature in the rankings. The arrangements between publisher and retailers have been described as an open secret in the industry. I am aghast. I am aghast that people are gaming the bookseller charts, and I've lost all faith in booksellers. Someone talk me off the ledge. Someone talk me off the ledge. Jim, why is this not cheating? Uh, It's definitely cheating. It's just like how, you know, for decades that the music companies have been paying radio stations to play certain songs to make them more popular. This is the same exact thing. I don't know. When I took experimental psych in college and I learned that you can make any survey come out with any result that you want, I've have since stopped trusting <laughs> anything, mm. especially bestseller lists, because bestselling according to what? I don't know. So, yeah, I cannot talk you down off that ledge, R.A. You're right. Okay. You're right to be up there. Okay, well, let me get a little closer to the ledge, all right? Here's a paragraph, okay? The practice has come to light after a former W.H. Smith employee alleged that when he worked at the retailer, staff were instructed to display author and TV presenter Richard Osman's novel, The Thursday Murder Club, in the number one slot in stores, regardless of sales figures, because publisher Penguin Random House had paid for the space. 
I am even further aghast. Pippa, why do you not look aghast as I? I am cynical and my soul is filled with darkness. <laughs> fair, fair. <laughs> Bestseller lists have been weirdly skewed for ages. Like New York Times not allowing romance on, because if they did, it would be all of the top 10. Like it's not done by numbers. Mm. Well, I mean, I'm sure it has a, a loose relationship with numbers at times, but there's no way to know which entries are. I think that. the numbers that appear to matter are the euros that they're being handed across the table. All right, they didn't use euros anymore, the pounds, whatever. Probably Nick. pounds. Yeah, yeah. Given that it's yeah. the Brits, the filthy yeah. Brits. <laughs> pence. I think they're still using pence over there. Yeah, I've read that the New York Times bestseller list has come out and said that it's a curated list, which is just their way of saying, you know, like, yeah, we, we don't care what the actual best-selling titles are. We're going to put what we want on it. You know, when I became a 120th uh, USA Today best-selling author, we didn't come anywhere near the New York Times best-selling list, even though we had the numbers for it. But that's because they weren't ever going to look at it. You know, they were never going to put it up there. It's happened before for some of the indies in that doing that kind of thing. But we all approached it like we'll probably get USA Today and maybe a couple others, but I don't think we're going to get New York Times because it's curated. It's a list that some intern gets to pick every week, you know, and I absolutely believe it has a lot to do with who's paying back channel money under the table funds. Yeah. I don't really have a problem with that because they've come out and said it. It's like Fox News saying that they're not really news. They're just entertainment. Mm. It's like news flavored entertainment. I wish all of the mainstream media would come out and say that because it's literally the same thing across the board. But, you know, the fact that New York Times says that, hey, it's curated list. It's not actually based on reality. I'm like, okay, cool. Mm. So this is what I think. I think if you're one of our six listeners, start a GoFundMe, okay? We'll do a little book and then we'll pay them off and we'll be on everybody's bestseller list. And uh, we'll just put it all on all our covers, like six or seven lists long that we did. We'll be awesomer, awesomer than we are. Can you imagine calling up the New York Times and like getting through to their book department being like, yes, I just need to know how much we need to pay you to get on the bestseller list? Yeah. Well, like so flat out. Yeah. I remember a couple of years ago when I was a few years ago now, I was working at a church still. And, you know, so I was very involved in like what new, you know, mega church pastor book would come out and, you know, just paying attention to that kind of stuff. And there was one guy who got like totally chastised by the, I guess, Christian community, whatever you call it, the church people, because he released a book that was immediately a bestseller. And it came out that he had just purchased like 50,000 copies. His church remember that 50,000 copies you know, and everyone wanted to cancel him and like, you know, run him across the coals. And it was like, well, this is literally how every book got on the bestseller list. Like, this is just the first time you've heard that the mm -hmm. mega church pastor is doing it, but that's how that's all true. of them got there. But like they say, it's an open secret. Indeed. Indeed. So we talked about bestseller lists once before on the show, and this further solidifies, I would say our position that they don't really matter. So if you get something good, if you don't, so be it. Okay. Moving on. If you're listening to us and you have decided that your route to publishing your book is going traditional, I'm rooting for you. We have somehow you. failed you. Yes, <laughs> that's true. That's true. But listen, I'm rooting for you. If you want to do that, I'm rooting for you. But these stats that you may hear shortly are not that awesome. I think they were given to us via Nick by Roland Denzel or via Jim by friend of the show, Roland. I don't know. They came from Roland Denzel. Thank you, Roland. It is from the Nelson Agency. It's the 2021 NLA end of year stats by Kristen Nelson. And it says 
For over a decade, NLA has compiled our yearly stats. This year is no exception, and there is one positive note in the number of manuscripts requested that also received offers of representation. This is good news for writers. Find out what else was positive for writers in 2021. Now, I'll let you guys talk about some of these numbers a little bit because I think some of them are astounding. So let's see. Who wants to go first and talk about their favorite part of this statistic list? Pippa. Well, I'm actually going to focus on something that's not like the main dish here, but I think what we should look at is they received about 14,000 queries. And one thing that I actually do recommend, even for self-published authors, is to try to write a few query letters, regardless of whether or not you are planning to query anyone, mm. simply because it helps you come to terms with how many books are out there and how many of similar books have been seen before. And I think a good part of the blurb writing process and selling your book and being able to say, yeah, there's a lot of similar stuff out here and, and that's good because certain people want that something similar to what they love, but here's how mine is special. Mm. So right on. Okay. Well, you got Nick, what do you got about these crazy numbers? They're crazy. I think we should probably just say it in case people don't let's still read the article, but this is from Nelson literary agency, traditional publisher. And their attitude about this article is excitement. <laughs> <laughs> They're like pumped about these numbers, which just really goes to tell you the delusion that, some of these traditional publishers exist in just this self-fulfilling prophecy of gatekeeping. I don't know, I'm rambling. But yeah, so they had 13,932 queries read and responded to. So this doesn't even count the slush pile, right? Like they just read it and just put it in a pile. This is, so I assume it's probably somewhere like 20,000 that they got queries for. Out of those 20,000, they published three. <laughs> clients, not books. So they got three new clients that signed with them. That's just absurd. It's not absurd. It's completely typical, but it just sounds so stupid to me. It sounds so stupid why anybody would play this game when we have a better game. Like, that's what I think is that we're coming on to. Like, 40 years ago, sure, this is the game. You got to play the game, right? But there's a better game now. <laughs> and I just, I'm appalled and amazed that these traditional publishers pretend like that other game doesn't exist. Um, mm. You know, they're just super pumped about this. They're like, oh my God, it's so great. We did such a good job with these three authors that we signed. I don't know. I don't I'm know what to say. I'm confused about Just... the interaction between the 111 manuscripts that received offers of representation from them or other agencies versus the three new clients who signed with NLA. So like, there's also a very, very small percentage in terms of, it looks like, like even if we assume that half of them received offers from NLA, then only a small fraction of those decided to sign with NLA. That's really interesting. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know, guys. This is crazy. You know, 14,000 queries read and responded to, like you were just saying, three new clients. Three new clients. That's incredible to me. You're one of these poor 14,000 people that are querying, and you just don't know that, like, behind the scenes, they're like, you have no chance. Like, mm -hmm. there is some gold in those 14,000 queries like i guarantee you they're just sitting there at home wondering why it's not coming to them anyway jim what about you man i think this was your article to begin with or maybe it was nick's i don't know i don't remember now there's no, certainly nothing in here that makes me feel good i think if i for example owned a small press if i had for example just started a publishing company 
I would send prospective authors to this article <laughs> to break their spirits <laughs> and say, yeah, you want to go after the big five, here's what you're up against. But you could sign with my small press. I don't know if I were sort of a small press owner who also mm. was on this podcast right now, that might be what I would do. Mm. Is there somebody else here? There you go. Makes sense <clears throat> to me. All right. So not to be doom and gloom, but if you're wanting to get a trad deal, I don't think the Nelson agency is the one for you. But hey, query. Well, I, I'd also be... like to put in here that this is getting an agent for your manuscript. This is not getting a publishing deal. This right. is getting an agent. <laughs> That's Even different. Worse. You go through the whole process again after that. That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> to get a publishing deal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Another 13,000 queries. All right. So... <laughs> Bad times, bad times. But hey, we can always hit publish on our own books and make life easy for ourselves. So let's go to the next story. Now, this story is old, okay? But it kind of goes hand in hand with the following story. So I can't imagine that this is much different now than it was a couple of years ago, okay? Uh, the report is film adaptations of books earn 53% more at the worldwide box office. They were saying film adaptations of books gross 44% more at the UK box office, 53% more worldwide, you know, yada, yada, yada. And the question is, why do you guys think that is? I know this story goes into why. I mean, obviously, you know, Harry Potter, you know, J.K. Rowling has got a huge fan base, so that's going to make, you know, the numbers skew for her books. But there were none of those books coming out a couple of years ago. What's your guys' take on this? Why is, you know, they, they reference The Handmaid's Tale and that kind of stuff, so... Let's talk about movies. Why do movies based on a property do better at the box office? How about Nick? My first quick take on it is that books are written for readers and movies are written for executives, you know, and obviously that's a very broad brush I'm painting with, but you know, you've got content. If it's a book that makes it all the way through production, it's probably a bestseller book. It's probably a good book. It's probably something that people liked. Whereas if you're a screenplay author, you might be a good storyteller, but you also are pretty much playing a different game. You know, you're writing a screenplay so that you can option it out, maybe sell it, but it's an executive that gets to say yes or no, this is going to be a good story that's going to make a bunch of money. But the story is secondary, right? They think they can make a bunch of money from it. So that's my first guess is that a property that's already been proven in book form is going to be popular in a different form as well. So I don't know. I mean, that's my guess. Right on, right on. Jim, what do you think, man? Uh, I think humans are hardwired to prefer things they've seen, prefer things they recognize, just like babies and puppies. We prefer things that are familiar to us. And so, you know, it's easier for Hollywood to take a chance on an existing IP that has a history of selling in some other medium than to take a chance on a brand new property that no one knows if it could sell in any medium. Hollywood is big, big bucks. There's a lot of money being thrown around. And we're all authors. We're always like, why doesn't Hollywood contact us? We've got lots of ideas because, you know, an idea is unproven. And but a Wolverine, a movie based on a comic book that already exists is less unproven. So it's just about risk. There you go. All right, Pippa, does this ring true to you? Are you more uh, apt to watch something based on a property you're aware of or do you take more chances? I actually don't watch very much stuff. I read or play. I'm not a huge TV or movie watcher. But I'd say there's probably also the aspect, in addition to what Jim and Nick said, about the fact that it's also a 
if you see something that's adapted from a book or based on a book, that's also a heuristic for like, oh, yes, other people thought this was good. Like, as a consumer, you've also got that going for you. And we love heuristics. It's a huge thing for humans. Yeah. So it's kind of like um, social proof, right? I guess if uh, yeah. if something's on the bestseller list that they bought their way onto, you assume that everybody everybody else likes it. So maybe you will as well. Okay. So the reason why I kind of talked about the money being more for movies based on properties is because the next story is from the bookseller and it's about the adaptation game. And it's talking about how creating content based on previous IP is an ever-growing trend. Uh, and it's something that's happening more and more. And the reason why I thought that this was interesting was because I got this from the passive voice, right? And so passive guy said, you know, he's a lawyer. And I think the relevant part to us might be the passive guy says this is trend is all the more reason for authors to hold on to their subsidiary rights or if traditionally published, bump the royalty rates up for sub rights or negotiate for an increasing percentage of subsidiary rights as gross income to the publisher from subsidiary rights hits revenue at certain levels. So, I mean, it's hopeful, right? It's hopeful. Like we're all going to sell adaptations and make movies, right? I'd say he's making a very good point, right? In abstract, you know, make sure that your rights are good for X, Y, Z. Except one of the things that's been true in publishing for ages is that certain authors have the publishing equivalent of most favored nation status, which is that if anyone else's contract has any better parts than theirs, they immediately get upgraded. Mm. And so your ability as pretty much anyone who listens to this podcast coming in from the indie world and moving over is going to be severely compromised in terms of negotiating on percentages. I don't think you're going to be able to do that. If you could, that would be delightful. Absolutely. But interesting, interesting. Your odds are not good. <laughs> Jim, is this something that you are keeping an eye on at all? Tell me in Jim Heskett's world, okay? You get a legitimate email from someone who wants to option your work, right? What steps are you going to take to make sure you don't get hosed? The first thing I would probably do would be to contact an attorney, uh, an IP attorney or an entertainment lawyer, either one, because I am confident that I'm not smart enough to not get hosed mm. by those contractual terms. Mm. I'm smart enough to know that I'm not smart enough to handle it. So mm. I should outsource the thinking there to someone much smarter. That would probably be the first thing I would do. I mean, I have most of my rights for most of my books and I am holding on to them like my precious little children. Mm. Okay, that makes sense. Nick, when this becomes an issue for you and Conundrum, how are you guys going to approach this? Yeah, so pretty much what Jim said, I tell every author, you know, they always ask, they're like, well, you know, it's got this thing in here for subsidiary rights, including like, you know, film adaptations. And I'm like, <laughs> no studio on the planet is going to accept our contract as theirs. They're going to lawyer up. So that's what we're going to do. So it's almost a non-issue at this point. It's like, hey, we're going to put it in here and maybe some stupid studio would pay us the ridiculous amount of royalties from it. But it's a case-by-case -case basis. It has to be because every movie is going to be different. Every option contract is going to be different. Generally, I guess they would be the same in that here's the money to give us the rights to make something out of this in the next year or the next two years. I think that's kind of the standard thing, right? 10,000 bucks or whatever. But yeah, we're getting a lawyer. I mean, it's just, it's one of those things where it's like, I'm not going to keep a lawyer on a retainer in case it happens, but 
it's such a common occurrence for an IP contract or copyright lawyer, I mean, to have dealt with before. So we would just lawyer up, hope for the best. And at the end of the day, I'm a realist when it comes to this kind of stuff. I have no expectation that anything I've ever written or ever will write will become a movie or a TV show just because it, the numbers just don't work out. There's just such, it's like winning a lottery. Of course, I hope for that. Of course, it'd be great. But realistically speaking, I'd almost not rather, I guess I'd love to see my stuff on the silver screen, but it'd be kind of cool if I could figure out a system to submit this stuff regularly and get option contracts over and over again. You know, the value of a property goes up if somebody options it, right? So it's like, oh, well, this studio wanted it. They didn't have time or money or whatever, didn't want to make it. So we're going to give them 15,000 next time instead of 10 and mm-hmm. take it from that studio. Because I know there's people that do that. There's, that's how people make the screenwriters will often make their living is not by having movies made, but have by having options sold. So I'd tell any author, you know, don't focus on getting your book turned into a movie. Try to figure out how to get somebody, an agent is what they're called. Try to find someone who can sell to Hollywood and get some options for your books because you can make some money that way. That's true. That's true. All right. Well, that sounds good, guys. I think that this explosion, you know, television is becoming a black hole for content. I mean, you know, we used to just have a couple channels and that was it. But there's so many people making movies now. You know, maybe you will hit the lotto. Nick, I'm rooting for you, man. I'm rooting for you. Well, I appreciate that. All right. I'm rooting for me, too. I expect no less. I expect no less. So our last story is from The Guardian. And uh, a fella won the Booker Prize. George Sanders, George Saunders is his name. I never read his book. But, hey, he seems to be decent. You know, from what I can tell, I don't know. But he has seven ways to improve your creative writing. So I figure uh, of these seven, each of you probably have a different one that you think is the most interesting or relevant or something you hate or what I call attention to. So why don't we just talk about what you guys think about this list here? And if any of you have already read it and want to go first, just raise your hand and I'll let the other Jim, uh, you tap dance for a while and let everyone else read the story. Sure. I know that my co-hosts don't read any of these articles before the show. They pay me to lead, not to read. (laughs) So the one that (laughs) sticks out to me of these seven is number seven, avoid thinking about your book's big themes. I like that a lot, especially like it coming from a literary author. I really like literary authors saying, don't focus so much on the themes of your book, because it seems to me that's all literary fiction cares about is the themes of your book. This to me reminds me of what Stephen King said about theme. You know, Stephen King said that basically that theme is a second draft problem. I wholeheartedly agree with that. I don't worry about my theme. I mean, sometimes I might have a kind of a base idea of what I want the book to kind of be about. This is about redemption or it's about forgiveness or something like that. But I don't try to write that stuff into the first draft. You know, I just write the story and then the themes kind of come out to me accidentally. Like as I'm reading back, I'm like, noticed I've focused here, you know, a lot on this character's anger. So maybe the thematically that can work in to their redemption arc, you know, and that's the kind of stuff that then I go back in and I focus on. I feel like, I don't know how this would work for anybody else, but for me, if I go into a story thinking about the theme I want to give it, I'm going to be heavy handed. So theme has to be very natural for me or else it's too much. Yeah. I think theme put into a first draft or, you know, premeditated is an agenda and nobody wants to read about an agenda, an author's agenda. Okay. Very good, sir. Very good. Well, what do you got for your, your contribution, Mr. Thacker? 
Yeah, these are good. I definitely get the sense that he's like a literary author, you know. He's got this whole, you know, you, revision is not meaningful unless I print, you know, put it on paper. I'm like, okay, boomer. You know, it's great. Like to each their own. Like there's other ways of doing it, obviously. I don't have to print a whole tree in order to revise my book. But I also don't really revise my book. <laughs> Number the drafts. I can go back and say, oh, I'm on draft 98. I'm like, all right, dude. There's a, just a disconnect here about how I write versus how he writes. And neither one is right or wrong. It's just very, very different from my method, I guess. So I think these are good. I think these are more like seven ways this bro has improved his creative writing rather than seven ways to improve yours. Because I could do probably all of these and my writing would get worse. Okay, right on. Pippa, bring us home. I'd actually say three and four for me. I do find, I wouldn't do it for every draft, but I do find that printing things out and reading them on the page is significantly different. Occasionally I can do that also with Kindle. Just like taking it off the format you've been reading it in and reading it in a different format helps me revise. And then I have my, I'm sure I've shared it here, my personal rule, which is when I get to the point where I put back in a comma I have already taken out, I call myself done with self-edits. Okay. Right on. Right on. All right. Well, thanks, George Saunders, for your input there. And uh, we'll let you go back to your literary business. So, all right, guys, you guys got anything you want to add? Any mulligans or takeaways from the week? Yeah, I have one thing I want to add. I would like to say this about printing out your manuscript. Save a tree. Don't print your manuscript. Instead, just put your manuscript in like Word and change the font to something you don't ever look at. Because mm, if, if it's if it's a different, yeah, totally papyrus. I recommend you want your eyes to bleed. And W <laughs> recommends papyrus font. <laughs> but, but change the font to something you're not used to, then the words will look different and you'll pay more attention. Interesting. I've heard of people using some text-to-speech apps to have it read back to you. I do that. Uh, that's helpful. I've done that in the past. It takes mm-hmm. too damn long, so I don't do it anymore. I'd rather have typos. <laughs> <But> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, that's a great way to do it. There's mm-hmm. some pretty cool apps that are coming. There's one we should probably mention. It's an indie author who set it up, but it's, I can't remember the name of it now. But it's an app on like you download it on your phone, you load your ebook on it, so your manuscript in this case, and it actually reads it back to you. You can touch the screen in different places to make like, you know, comments or <clears throat> flags to go back. So it's kind of a real time interactive thing, which is cool. So it saves a step of okay, well let me pause it and then write down what needs to change and then keep going. If anyone listening knows what that is, I did a trial of it and really liked it. It was pretty, it was pretty cool. I can dig it up if not. Okay. Awesome. awesome. Please do, I'm intrigued. Yeah, we'll mention it next week when we figure out what the heck it is. All right. So for all of us at Author News Weekly, I'm Ari McGee saying this meeting is over. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.